0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Gnosis and Compassion, recorded July 31st, 1994 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: So let me begin just with a definition, a kind of a technical, etymological definition of Gnosis. Where did the word come from? It's a Greek word, and in ancient Greek... Greek, there were several words for knowledge. They made distinctions between various types of knowledge. Uh, one of the main ones, for instance, was the difference between knowledge, gnosis, and doxa. Doxa means opinion, and the, the Greeks recognized that opinion is not knowledge this is a this is a distinction we uh, would do well to bring back to our culture uh people have a hard time distinguishing their opinions from their knowledge and very often uh when we talk we uh we take our opinions to be uh knowledge but in any case uh, and they had several other words and but gnosis meant uh knowledge with the idea of certainty this was certain knowledge And Plato used it in that sense, but he also used it for the highest kind of knowledge. Now there's a big dispute among modern scholars about what Plato thought the highest sort of knowledge was, or is, and at the very least he thought the highest form of knowledge was a direct apperception of the forms that determine the universe, the archetypal forms that stand, in a certain sense, behind all the ephemeral forms that determine this universe. Uh, in fact, Plato talks about a higher form of knowledge, or sometimes he talks about something which transcends knowledge. And he talks about it in terms of a, uh, like a spark that's lit in the soul, and that uh, starts this fire, and uh, once it's lit, that's it. This completely transcends all knowledge and everything else. So it's not clear the, whether Plato was using gnosis as just the highest form of knowledge and then there was something beyond that or whether he meant that this knowledge ultimately was equivalent to this spark lit in the soul that he, the metaphor that he used. In any case, among the neo-Platonists uh, and the early Christians, of course, who picked up a lot of neo- Platonic philosophy and interpreted Christianity in terms of Neoplatonic philosophy, Gnosis came very specifically to mean uh, a direct and immediate knowledge of ultimate reality, of God. Uh, that's usually the, uh, something like that will be the definition you'll find in most modern dictionaries when you look up. It is still a, it has come into the English language and it's still a rather archaic word, but it is, in fact, an English word in most most English dictionaries. In the early church, Gnosis was talked about primarily in relation to the saying of Jesus, know the truth and it shall make you free. The word, of course, the this was from the Gospel of John, I believe. The Gospel of John, as well as all the New Testament Gospels, were written in Greek. The word know here is Gnosis, or a variation of Gnosis. And so the early Christians talked about gnosis, uh, the knowledge of God. Sometimes they talked about it as a vision of God. They didn't mean a vision of God like the vision of the Holy Virgin who might appear to you visually, but this is this idea that this knowledge is direct. So vision here is a metaphor. It's the same sort of metaphor that was used by the ancient rishis of India who are called seers of God. And this, again, the seeing is not that they were sitting around one day and they saw Shiva appear to their, in their visual field or even appear in a visual way as, as would happen in a dream. This means that it has to do with this direct knowledge, this absolutely unmediated knowledge. The Indian word janana or ganana, as it's sometimes pronounced in English, Is a Sanskrit word which means exactly the same thing and it is etymologically related to gnosis. Gnosis is spelled G-N-O-S-I-S. Janana is J-N-A-N-A and that root J-N-A-G-N-O is the same root. And it's very interesting that in Hinduism, Janana is the highest form of knowledge. This is the knowledge that uh, liberates you if you read Shankara, for instance, the the, uh, knowledge that um, produces this emancipation, is this know the truth, to know reality, to know Brahman directly, immediately, unmediated by any images, forms, or so forth. Then Gnosis also in the Western tradition became associated with particular groups of primarily of Christians who uh, dissented from the developing Orthodox Church, which was leaning more to a formalized sort of religion with dogmas and so forth. And these groups of Gnostics, as they were called, would meet and they would say, no, you're losing sight of what Jesus' teachings was all about. You're losing sight of the fact that, uh, that Jesus was saying anybody can have Gnosis, as Jesus did. Uh, anybody can know the truth and be free. And sometimes these groups would produce people who would claim Gnosis, who weren't part of the priesthood, for instance. And this was very upsetting to the Catholic Church. You can't just have people popping up and claiming to know what Jesus knew when you have, you know, trained priests who have gone to school and who are responsible in positions of authority. So the group of the dissidents who were, who were known as Gnostics were looked on by the Orthodox Church as being heretical. And they were attacked and criticized and so forth, and in some cases persecuted. And in any case, virtually disappeared from the, from the picture, went underground or whatever, but no longer met openly as little groups of Gnostics. So that's another meaning of the term Gnostic is sometimes you read about in, um, particularly in histories of religion. They'll talk about the Gnostics and that refers to these specific sects that were, that flourished in the second and third centuries A.D. But Gnosis was a perfectly good Christian word long after that. In any case, when we use Gnosis at the center here, we're not talking about the Gnostic sects. We don't look back to any of the Gnostic sects or claim any lineage from them, except insofar as some of them apparently, honestly, uh, did produce Gnostics, people who had this Gnosis, and um, so forth. And this is also not to say, my remarks are not to be taken as uh, some sort of ultimate criticism, that the, the problem with the Western world is now that the Church persecuted the Gnostics. Uh, the the church had um, uh, a certain uh, very definite legitimate concerns about this, and as we all know in our own time, this uh, this idea that anybody can be a gnostic is uh, is true, but it also can be dangerous. It can also produce charlatans and um, and all sorts of people uh, who take advantage of this, who claim a gnosis they don't really have, and or, or claim knowledge that other people don't have, and then you end up with places like. Uh, uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, Jones, Jim Jones' community or David Crush or whatever. So it's not, it's not just black and white. And we make a mistake when we look at the whole problem with the Western world is the the Catholic uh, dogma, that is, uh, that is not the problem. But we don't want to go into all that. Gnosis then is this direct, immediate knowledge of ultimate reality. However, when we say it that way, we are not really defining gnosis because when we, when even when we say direct or immediate knowledge of ultimate reality we are making a division as though there was some knowledge and then there's reality some perceiver and something perceived i think the best definition of gnosis that i know of is knowledge through identity it's a definition that uh, Franklin Merrill wolfe used and uh, uh, that he picked up from um, the Hindu tradition, and you'll find it in other traditions. Knowledge by identity. Now, what, what does this mean? Uh, the closest we perhaps can come to it is just looking at we, the knowledge we have of ourselves, or at least the knowledge we have of who we are not. Now, Ramana Maharshi has a uh, a wonderful uh, metaphor for this. Somebody asked him, what is, uh, what is this janata, this, this gnosis, knowledge through identity? And he said, well, do you know that you are not a goat? And the person said, yes, of course. And he said, well, I mean, do you have to think about that you're not a goat? Is it something that, a piece of knowledge in your mind? And they said, No. How do you know you're not a goat? You just know you're not a goat. It's not—it's unmediated. You don't have to think about it. It's not a, something that happens through thought. You don't have to deduce it, figure it out. You don't have to conduct experiments. You know you're not a goat. Well, he said, well, in the same way, I know that I'm not an individual self. Now, this is a, the closest analogy I know uh, that we can get to in the use of language because, of course, language itself divides the world. Knowledge through identity is a non-dual sort of knowledge and language automatically creates duality. Just the very fact of naming anything, as I said before, creates a duality. Uh, Here's a gong, and to call this a gong means to uh, distinguish it from everything that is not gong. So I already have a distinction in the world. I already have a duality. You cannot use language without creating duality. Language is based on duality. The only way that you could have a language that had no duality in it would be to call everything gong. It would be a language with one word, and then it would be a useless language. We couldn't use it. So again, there's nothing wrong with this creation of duality. What we what we lose track of is that this duality is a creation. It is imaginary. It is a creation of thought. That's the problem with it. Not that it's there, but we mistake it then to be real. So when we start speaking about gnosis, beyond saying it's something like knowledge through identity or non-dual knowledge, we really can't say anything more about it. Or let me put it this way, the more we say about it, the farther we're going to get away from what it is. So let's just keep that in mind because we are going to speak a little bit more about it, but we are going to get farther and farther away. Now, when you brought up this uh, initial question, you said you'd read about it, you'd heard about it, but you still didn't really understand it. Well, there's a very good reason you still didn't understand it. Gnosis, you don't understand until you have gnosis. And even to say have gnosis is is, uh, uh, short of the truth. Um, Gnosis, by the same token, by being non-dual, is a word that also means reality. It is not knowledge of reality, it is reality. And insofar as we at the center use consciousness as a word to indicate ultimate reality, uh, you could say gnosis is not distinguishable from consciousness. And insofar as you can say that the nature of consciousness is bliss or love, gnosis is indistinguishable from bliss or love. What I'm trying to get at is that in the limit of the absolute, that is when you push beyond language, that all these terms, these are the highest terms that we have, uh, to use in a teaching situation, but they all are pointing towards the same thing. Beyond where language can go, it's, they're all arrows, and, and each one is separate and distinguishable and has different connotations and all that, but they're all pointing towards something that if you, if you, uh, uh, what do you do? Uh, Plot out the trage- trajectory that they're aiming at. They all converge at the same point, if you like. So even when we talk about Gnosis as something separate from reality, or consciousness, or love in the ultimate sense, we are again uh, diluting, the, uh, diluting the true meaning. We are uh, giving form to something that is ultimately formless. This is no problem with this as long as we're just very clear of what we're doing, very much aware of what we're doing. Now, one of the problems of our language, and our language, of course, is a uh, verbal expression of our thought processes. And our thought processes are specific forms of imagination. And imagination ultimately is the power of consciousness, not uh, specifically a human power. So I don't mean imagination here is necessarily the, the uh, imaginal processes that you go through when you sit down and fantasize. Because language is a reflection of thought and thought is a reflection of imagination, and imagination is really what creates these distinctions. What happens, what or we could say the definition of delusion is, to mistake these distinctions for being real. And the root and primary delusion here is to mistake the distinction between I and other, self and world, soul and God as being a true real distinction. Once that distinction's in place, then we, when we talk about knowledge, we talk about knowledge of something. I have knowledge of something. I know about mathematics. I know certain facts of science. I may talk about knowledge in the sense of having skills. I know how to drive a car. I know how to swim. I may talk about that sense of a almost a pure sort of experience. I may say, uh, I know Los Angeles. I lived there 10 years. I know that city well. I may say I um, I know uh, thunder. A deaf person doesn't know thunder the way I know thunder. So I can use it in this range from something very um, abstract. I can know mathematical theorems, for instance, to something quite empirical, something rooted in sensation, in, in sen- sensory experience. But in all these uses, notice that there is hidden or underlying that, this assumption of an I and another. I know something about the world. Whether it's the sensory world or the abstract world, the world of philosophy and mathematics, it doesn't matter. So when we talk about Gnosis as being a knowledge of the absolute reality, notice there's built in that distinction between I and other. That's that's not really true. Gnosis is... Actually, seeing that that distinction is false. It's false in the sense that it doesn't reflect reality. It has a, an appearance. And when mystics say that, uh, that all these forms are imaginary, the products of imagination, they don't mean that they don't appear to consciousness. You know, obviously, uh, you know, Buddha could distinguish between, uh, Ananda and Shibuti, two of his disciples, uh, Jesus could distinguish between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's not a question of, of living in what Alan Watts called a, um, a sort of a mush, you know, a pablum, a, a, a completely homogeneous environment. But it is recognizing that these distinctions are, are products of our imagination. A metaphor or analogy for this is you can look into the sky sometimes on a cloudy day, these beautiful clouds scudding by, and you can lie there in the grass and look up, and you can start to see all sorts of things. You can see herds of animals. Sometimes I see whales, big giant whales beautifully floating through, you know. I see them. I also know they're not there. There are no animals thundering through the sky. There are no giant whales gliding through the the Azores. Very often, some of you have meditated, you will sit there looking at a rug, and particularly if it's a pattern rug, and you'll see all sorts of faces and whatnot. You see them. No question about that. But you know they're not there. You know that they're products of imagination. That's what gnosis is. It's just this. Just to know that all this is a product of imagination. So, we can say... uh when we're trying to get at this, we can say there's another word that comes close, and that is an English word called insight. Now, insight is uh, something that is a lot less mysterious than gnosis. Most of us have experienced uh, insights of one sort or another. For instance, you might be studying mathematics, and you might be struggling with some proof of a theorem. And you might be following it through and following it through and you just don't get it. And you go through it several times and then suddenly, oh, you get it. Ah, you have an insight. You see, there's an immediacy about that insight. It's very, it's very interesting when you, if you have an insight like that to try to examine it. And I don't mean to examine it by think about it a lot, but to pay attention. What happened there? It's very hard to put your finger on what happened there. Gnosis is always sudden, like an insight, because for the very for the very reason that there's actually nothing to know, only if there's something there to know, could you get to know it gradually. But it's the opposite, it's a negative version of, in a certain sense, the way we think about knowledge. It's a sudden insight into just seeing, oh, this is the true nature of everything very much like has the quality of the sudden insight and in saying, oh, this is the nature of the theorem. Another word we use is uh, realization, very commonly used. And again, this comes from a uh, uh, an analogy that we have in our everyday life. When you realize something, it's, a, it's an insight. And one of the analogies I've used over and over is, uh, oh, I, I'm going to get, a, I got a new one. Um, I think it was Black Beauty or one of these, when I was a child, I saw one of these films about horses and children, you know, and this and that, one of these real tearjerker films. And I, I remember there was one episode in it where the horse, call it Black Beauty got stolen or lost and then went on and had, you know, was mistreated and had been hooked up to an ice truck or, or almost ended up in the slaughterhouse or whatever, you know. And I, at the end, the, the little boys looking for the horse, I think they're racing out to the cattle yards or the, you know, the the slaughterhouse where they're going to turn the horse into dog meat or something. And, and the boy is looking and looking through all these horses. Now, of course, Black Beauty is all bedraggled and, you know, has the manes hasn't been taken care of and the hooves haven't been shot and all that. And suddenly the boy recognizes, realizes, oh, that's Black Beauty. Now, you see what happens here? What, what's the nature of this sudden recognition or realization about something? It's not that anything immediately changed in the boy's experience. It's not like the horse, you know, said, Oh, I'm black beauty, look at me. It's not like the horse took off a mask. Nothing physically changed in that situation, but the boy just recognized, just realized, remembered is another, the way we remember something quickly. So these words, recognition, realization, insight, and so forth, are uh, words that relate to gnosis. Gnosis has that quality. In a certain sense, you can say gnosis is an ultimate insight, an ultimate realization, an ultimate recognition. They also relate to gnosis because on a spiritual path, you can begin to cultivate limited insights that in a certain sense bring you closer to the truth. Now, as the as opposed to what we normally think of knowledge, they bring you closer to the truth because they bring you closer to a kind of unknowing. Normally, we think of knowledge as accumulating and acquiring facts and theorems and so forth in our head. We say that's a learned professor. Why? Because that professor can uh, talk for hours on whatever topic that professor is an expert on has read all the the books about it, has read the history, or whatever. Uh, That's a a learned scientist. That scientist's head is full of uh, scientific theories and formulas and so forth. In truth, from a mystic's point of view, our problem is not that our minds lack knowledge, but that our minds are full of ignorance, as Shankara says. In a certain sense, all these theories, facts, and so forth constitute our ignorance. Not because, again, anything's wrong with the theories, facts, and so forth, but because we take them to be the reality. And because we are looking at them as the reality, we are distracted from seeing the reality. So, in a certain sense, what a spiritual path is about is about undoing all that knowledge that we have. And that knowledge includes, more fundamentally, our basic beliefs and assumptions about the world. doesn't mean so much the expertise we may have in some particular field, although that may really color your assumptions about the world. But it means those basic assumptions that we have about the world. For instance, that objects exist out there independent of our consciousness, or I should say consciousness, independent of awareness. Uh, all these assumptions that we fundamentally take for granted. And so what our problem is from a spiritual point of view is not to get more knowledge, but to start seeing through bit by bit the character of this knowledge, that it is only a relative sort of knowledge. It's only an imaginary sort of knowledge. A crude analogy for this would be like uh, someone in a a little prison made of bricks. And the way they get out of prison is not to pile up more bricks, but to start taking the bricks out one by one. And you find a little chink in the wall, and there's a loose brick, and you pull that out. And a little bit of daylight flashes through then there's a loose brick over here and you pull that out and you start pulling it out. And at some point the whole prison will collapse around you. Nobody can predict exactly when that's going to happen. In the meantime, though, you can get flashes of what lies outside of that prison. True, legitimate flashes. Insights. So on a spiritual path, cultivating insight is not acquiring new knowledge, but it's by using attention, by observing closely, by leaving behind as much as possible your received beliefs and opinions, your doxa about the world, being able to look directly, what is the truth of this? Now, I'll give you one very good example, and it's one that is usually... um something held up to investigate early on a spiritual path, and that is the impermanent nature of everything. And again, I've talked about this many times, I won't go into much detail, but we all, first of all, basically know that everything's impermanent. Some people still believe atoms are permanent, but they aren't. In fact, they are more amorphous than anything else. Uh, according to quantum mechanics. But in any case, everything is impermanent, and uh, certainly all the forms of our lives are impermanent. And we know that, but we don't really believe it. We don't experience the world that way. But if you watch and pay attention, your knowledge that the world is impermanent will become a, a realized knowledge, an experiential knowledge. You slow down. You observe everything closely. You observe simply how the light changes in the garden and you will see that you think that those plants out there have fixed colors. But they don't have any fixed colors. The color is what the light is. You say, oh yes, that uh, the tomato plant out there, the leaves are green. But I'll tell you, they're one shade of green in the morning, they're a different shade of green at noon, they're a different shade in the evening, and they're a very different shade at night. What's the true green? They don't have a true green, yes.
0: Um, color is perceived in the eye, it's not even in the plant. We're, we're picking it up through light rays somehow,
1: that's what I've read. Yes, and, and even more so, all this is perceived in consciousness. This whole idea that color is perceived in the eye and light rays is all imaginary. No one's ever seen a light ray.
0: But the color
1: green isn't even in the plant, is it? Well, the plant isn't even in the plant. So, but I don't want to get, get too far <laughs> out. that one,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but you're getting close. If you follow that that line of thought, if you actually start to experience that, this is actually something that comes from materialism. The um, uh, starting with Galileo and so forth, people began to realize: well, if the world is all made up of matter and so forth, then our our sensory experience of things like color isn't real. It's all in our mind, so to speak. But in any case, to get back to this without even going through all this intellectual inquiry, by just paying attention, you can see that it is not true that plants have any definite color. It's all impermanent. There is no what is the color? They don't have any definite shape either. You watch the leaf from spring to fall. The process of its unfolding is slower. So it gives the impression. In the middle of summer, you go out one day, and the leaf looks about like it did yesterday. In the spring, actually, you can see this much more vividly. You go out one day, and there was no leaf, and ooh, there's a little tiny sprout there, you know? About a day later, and ooh, it's this big, you know? You can actually see what, what is the shape of that leaf, you can't say what the shape of the leaf is. And then in the fall you can see, you know, the leaf is the little yellow spots, and then it gets orange, and then it starts to crinkle, and then the whole thing is, you know, dissolves and it's nothing. What was ever the shape of that leaf? You might even say uh, the shape of the leaf is whatever it is at this moment. But what is this moment? Then you start observing time. What is this moment? Can you define this moment? can you put your finger on this moment it's not there it's not there but the point here is not is i mean this sounds like intellectual head twisting the point is to really look really look that is what the insight is the insight is not uh, the intellectual understanding of this teaching oh sometimes insights can be intellectual in that sense but the real insight we're talking about here is an experiential insight The day you're sitting there and you experience all this as impermanent, and you say, oh, that's what the Buddha was talking about. This is what St. Augustine said when he says, you know, nothing truly exists, because it doesn't endure. I just gave you St. Augustine's argument. In the highest sense, he says, in some sense it exists. The Buddha said, you know, in some sense things are graspable, but in the highest sense it doesn't exist, it's not there. That sort of insight then starts leading you, or, or let's say directing attention, away from uh, its habitual distractions. It frees attention. It also frees the mind in the sense that you start wondering, what do you know or don't you know anymore? And you start throwing out things, or at least holding anything that you think you know very tentatively. You start becoming very unsure and very uncertain about things that you used to be very sure and certain about. That's why the Sufis say this whole path leads to perplexity, to bewilderment. And why the Tao Te Ching says this this whole thing is about unlearning. The the worldly person learns more and more every day. The sage learns less and less. It's about getting rid of. Now, I don't mean about, when I say getting rid of knowledge, I don't mean getting rid of knowledge in the sense of destroying it and reverting back to a child who never had any schooling. But it's about getting rid of the attachment and the certainty about the knowledge we have. That's really what the getting rid of is. Yeah.
0: I just finished a master's in speech and I spent a year studying reactants for my thesis. And the more I'd study, the less I'd know. So I went into my professor who has a PhD and I said, you know, the more I study, the less I know. And I said, is it going to be any different at the PhD level? He said, no, it gets worse. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, people who um, who can maintain a certain uh, honesty or humility go into fields, you know, any sort of field of expertise and what they... End up realizing is nobody knows anything, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I love a, the a, ultimate
0: knowledge, right?
1: Yeah. Well, this the... is no, but this is the beginning. You see, because you're looking in the wrong place. If you think that this sort of knowledge, which is all mediated by thought, which is knowledge that a person has about a presumed world out there that can be captured in thought, then you're never going to get to the truth. Now, if you can realize, the more you can realize how uncertain. And amorphous this knowledge is, the better. But that's, that's just clearing away the obstacle. Now you do, and this is the hardest thing for people. You have to be willing to have what Sansanim called a don't know mind. You have to be willing not to know. To just sit there, be there. Without knowing. Now this is part of what self-surrender is all about on a spiritual path. And humility, the true meaning of humility, it's, humility has nothing to do with going around being a doormat for people. It's, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. You don't know why it's going on. As that space of unknowing increases and opens up, that is the space in which Gnosis can be lit, as Plato said, like this spark in the soul. It requires that openness, that spaciousness, so to speak. What's really happening, or a better way of saying what's really happening is, the veils are being lifted. What's real, what's true is right there all the time. There's nothing really new to discover. There's nothing uh uh unusual. It's a little bit like uh, those of you who've ever worked in the theater. They have what's called a scrim. Does anybody know what a scrim is? What's the script? It's
0: just sort of a, a very gauze-like clock that uh, when the light's shone different ways will make you see through it. Otherwise, it doesn't and it things are on the front of it.
1: If the light is shown directly at it and it's usually got, uh, you know, paintings and stuff on it, it looks solid. You can't see behind it. And so, uh, and then if that light's taken off and a backlight comes up, then it disappears before your eyes. So you you might go to a play that starts off with a solid brick wall. This is what the audience sees. And then the, the lights change and the, the front light is withdrawn and the back lights come up. And now you see you're looking inside somebody's apartment in, in a brick building. It's a little magic trick they do on stage. It's quite kind of startling to see it. Well, this is what the spiritual path is about. When the light is withdrawn from the brick wall, then the the back light is, becomes visible then the reality becomes visible behind all this. Now, again, behind, you see, is a a dualistic term again. We're always going to be stuck in this. There's no way to avoid it. But these are just analogies to point you in this sort of direction. When we talk about uh, Gnosis being an immediate kind of experience, a direct experience, this still is not an experience the way we normally have experiences, because when we normally have experience, we are we normally experience as a subject experiencing some object. So even when I say, oh yes, I know Los Angeles, Los Angeles is out there and I'm in here. And when I say, oh, I know thunder, I still actually experience myself as sitting here and hearing the thunder out there someplace. But Gnosis is not that sort of experience at all. There is nothing to experience out there. That's what Gnosis is to realize, that there is nothing to experience out there. So you can say in a certain sense that Gnosis wipes out this whole world of experience. Rumi said it beautifully. He said, when that world dawns, this world is laid flat. vanished, dissolved completely. Not appearances but the reality that's assumed about them, it's gone, just gone. So this, this is, at least in some sense, why, on a spiritual path, emphasis is placed on having these sorts of insights, these non-conceptual, immediate sorts of insights, even though they still have an experiential character, they still uh, have this direct quality about them. And they, what they do is they raise questions about, uh, the knowledge that you previously had. Very often people have a hard time describing the insights on a spiritual path. In the beginning, they'll, they'll, they'll be easy to, but I've had people, particularly longer term practitioners come, and they'll really have trouble describing what they're talking about. I know what they're talking about somebody who had not been on a spiritual path would not know what they're talking about. The the deeper you go, the harder it becomes to talk about for a very good reason. That's a very good sign that you're, quote, making progress. Now, the other wing of all this, of course, is love. We've been talking about insight, truth, pursuing insight, pursuing truth, pursuing in terms of knowledge, and through that pursuit of insights, arrive at that ultimate insight. What's love got to do with it? Isn't that a title of a new movie, (laughs) out? What's love got to do with it? What does love have to do with it? We usually think of love as being some sort of emotion, that a subject, an eye, feels for an object, another. So I say, oh, you know, I love uh, strawberries, right? Well, no, that's the use of the word. That's That's fine. I love strawberries. Then I might say, uh, I love, um, I love uh, honesty. Well, that's a little, we think of it's a little higher form of love. One thing is you're loving some specific object, some something uh, that's possession. The other is loving a virtue. I love honesty. I love my cat. And then... Uh, for human beings, usually, we usually think of the highest form of love as loving another human being. And when we get into the realm of cats and things like that, we can also start to talk about being loved back. Uh, I don't know, some people are um, love worms, for instance. A friend of ours is into worms. You know, he loves worms. I don't know if he thinks of worms as loving him back. Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, these cats seem to love back. They respond to love. And, as far as we know, human beings do. At least we all assume they do. Well, what does all this have to do with reality, with everything we've been talking about in, in terms of gnosis and truth and this direct seeing? Well, love is experienced by a uh, an individual, an I, as a kind of emotion, as an experience. And, it's a, again, it's a strange thing. If you watch any emotion here, we say... Uh, It's something that seems to be happening to us. I've fallen in love. And we say this about other emotions. But we also say, I am angry, for instance. So what is this? Are we our emotions or or not? Are emotions something that happened to us? This is a, a very good place to start looking, by the way, for insight here. But really, uh, if we examine love, and love is very, very mysterious in our lives, particularly love that is when it's reciprocated or when we feel it's being reciprocated, when we start to examine that, beyond the emotional sense that we're feeling, you begin to see that uh, one of the things that happens is the boundaries become less definable. Two people who are in love uh, have less sense of, a separation. It's harder to distinguish one of those persons from the other person. Their interests are tied together. My interest becomes your interest, and your interest becomes my interest. How can I distinguish them as much? Do you see what I mean? Uh, The Same thing is true when we love a a cat or something. Our interests then are more tied together. It seems to us often be more one-sided. But if the cat gets sick, I take the cat to the vet and I interrupt my day and I, you know what I mean, I give up things that were important to me because somehow I feel the cat's pain, the cat's suffering is my pain and my suffering. We we start to have the same agendas here, so to speak, you know. Now this aspect of love, not necessarily all the emotional qualities about love, but this other aspect of love reflect something about the true nature of reality. There are no distinctions. There are no conflicting wills in consciousness. We could say there's only one will, which is the way the Sufis and Christians and Judaic tradition puts it when you talk about the terms of the will of God. That makes it quite anthropomorphic, we're using an analogy that we know from human life, that we believe we know. You might get more subtle, in, the, in the, the Taoists don't talk about the Tao having a will, but there's only one way. So the way the Tao goes, the way everything goes, there's no conflict in here. One thing isn't going one way and something else going another way, although it appears to us under delusion that that is the case. But truly speaking, it's all going together. To say the universe has only one will, the will of God, means that all is going along together, unfolding as it should. Again, these are all terms we're borrowing from human life. In Buddhism, they don't talk about any way or any God, but they talk about the, the spontaneous perfection of everything. Spontaneity has the idea that there is no will whatsoever. It's not like somebody's up there planning. There's just an absence of will. Things are, are happening of their own accord. In, in a certain sense, this is more abstract, but in a certain sense, more accurate. Once we start thinking about God's will, theologians get into, oh, such headaches and problems about it. what can God will? Can God will a stone that's so heavy that he can't lift? And I mean, they just twist their minds up needlessly. <laughs> but when we say all oh, this is just manifesting, let's drop the whole idea of will. There are no separate wills here. There's no conflicting wills. It, it, all these, I'm just trying to say, they're driving at the same idea. Everything in a certain sense has the same agenda. Well, this is this is what love is like, isn't it? If we can feel, and I don't mean emotionally here, but if we can experience that same sense of uh, unity that we can with another human being or with an animal... If we can expand that, if we can say, well, maybe that's not just true of this particular human being, maybe I can include that human being and that human being, you know, then we start to get a a sense of not, it's actually not something new happening, but it's removing those barriers. And then what we find is a delight, a bliss that usually has as it first happens to us, a big emotional content. It sparks a lot of emotion. As we all know, when we meet somebody and first fall in love, it sparks a lot of of emotion. That's not true love, though. That'll pass. Anybody thinks that's true love, you're in for an awful time in relationships, an awful time in relationships. The underneath that is something else. That's That's just the smoke that tells you where the fire is. The true fire of love doesn't burn like that. The true fire of love is like the light of the sun, you know. And and the divine love shines on everything, as is said in many traditions. The Buddha radiates compassion out on everything. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, beautiful or ugly, or, you know, toads and and uh, flowers. It doesn't matter. Again, these are. Metaphors, analogies, figures of speech trying to indicate something about what we would call consciousness. What is the nature of consciousness? It's something that's right here, immediate, always the case. The nature of consciousness is that it doesn't reject anything that arises in it. It doesn't play favorites to anything that arises in it. You watch. I mean, this is, anybody can test this out for themselves. This clock is here just as much as uh, Teresa's here. Just as much as the mosquitoes are here. You know, watch If you really get naked about watching, consciousness doesn't sort of just sort of push mosquitoes away a little bit and, and favor, uh, I don't know, songbirds. You see what I mean? You push mosquitoes away in favor of songbirds, but consciousness doesn't. You look up at the sky. Consciousness has room for this whole Milky Way, and, and a grain of sand if you're in the desert. And, and if you can watch, if you, you see, if you can drop out all these filters, you see there's absolutely no difference as far as consciousness is concerned. Again, we're using human terms, but consciousness is totally accepting of all those things. Absolutely, totally accepting. Consciousness doesn't care if you're a sinner or if you're righteous. What what do we say about God? You see what I mean? These are all just ways of, of talking about reality, the truth of things. So, compassion, what do we say about compassion? The, the true, innate, native compassion is the nature of reality. That's just the way things happen to be. And when we feel compassion in our lives, we think of it as something uh, happening, something new is coming into your life. It's not something new coming into your life. It's one of those bricks being removed from your life. And the more bricks are removed, then the more compassion, love there is. You're just experiencing truth, that's all. It's not a bad analogy. You notice people who have very little love and compassion in their lives, you would say, look at them and say, yeah, that's like somebody's living behind a brick wall, you know what I mean? They're all walled up inside themselves. I mean, we would say those things. No, you don't have to be a mystic to say that. It's a very, they reflect very, uh, the true situation. When we find somebody who's loving and compassionate, we say, oh, oh, they're a very open person. Open. We use these words, spacious. Because, you know, the truth of the matter is we all really do know this truth because why? We are this. We are this. This is why I go back to the original definition here. Knowledge of it through identity. Knowledge by identity. Let's just drop the, if we could drop out that intermediary word and say knowledge identity. And then we could drop out knowledge. Where's any knowledge and identity? There's no knowledge. You don't say, I, I know that I'm not a goat. You can say that, but you don't go around thinking of that as some knowledge you have. Some precious knowledge you have about yourself. Uh, One thing I know is I'm not a goat. I have very few people. If You do. You're probably in a little trouble. Maybe you should come see me for a private session. (laughs) It's just there. It never occurs to you that you are a goat. That's really... You see the negative aspect of all this, but not negative in a sense of value, but we always look for for positive, solid things. And we always miss the emptiness. And no thing is there without the emptiness. The emptiness is the background, so to speak. And even that, you see, our words are still, we're positing a thing as opposed to an emptiness. And there really is no distinction even in that. So we keep running into trouble. In any case, the two things that we experience normally in our lives, the two great things are insight and compassion, love. Everybody has experience of those things in one way or another. So here's something in the midst of deluded life. Here are two threads that you can pick up, one with each hand. And you can start following those threads. And the more you follow them, as I say, they lead to the exact same place. The nature of what's going on in a finite, limited way, when you have a finite, limited insight, or the nature of what's going on when you have a limited experience of love and compassion, just for one person or one animal or one, you know, whatever, is actually the same content is exactly what is the unlimited, infinite nature of all things. And that limitation is something that is, in a certain sense, self-imposed. And all you have to do is see that. It's actually quite simple.
0: Well, not easy.
1: <laughs> but not easy. Yes, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> so, that's at least a little uh, a, a little start to make some headway in trying to understand gnosis and their relation that it has to compassion and love. Any questions or any comments about what i said
0: well except for the phrase i have nothing
1: to say i have nothing to say (laughs) (laughs) you know in in some mystical traditions uh, speaking is de-emphasized properly so you know this uh, because the gnosis is not a matter of thought and, and speech and you cannot communicate it through thought and speech and so sometimes there's a real disparagement of thought and speech. And then Rumi has a wonderful thing about that. He says, let me see if I can get this right. He says, um, when you say that speech is irrelevant, you, you give yourself away because you're speaking. Why are you bothering to speak if speech is irrelevant? So even any, any, time we try to put something in words in talking about, uh, Ultimately, about the highest truth, we're always going to end up in a contradiction and a paradox. It's, it's it's funny how actually just simple things. When you say, you know, I have nothing to say, is paradox. What do you mean? You have nothing to say.
0: <laughs> the yeah. word compassion. Um, I wonder where it comes from. Without passion.
1: No, it with it's passion. suffer with passion. Passion in this sense meant suffering, like the passion of Christ. So, co, com, is to, like, yeah. yeah. Com is a companion. Companion, actually, it's very interesting. Pan That's from bread. Pan, still in French state, bread is pan. And com is with, to break bread with someone. They're your companions, the people you break bread with, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it's very interesting. Compassion is to suffer with. That's a very, very important thing. If you are not willing to suffer with, you don't have compassion. You might pity someone, but that's not compassion. Some people imagine the Buddha's compassion is this compassion that's from a distance. The Buddha sits up on the mountaintop, you know, and is above it all. And then the cries of the people rise up, you know, and the Buddha sort of takes notice and radiates a little compassion out of no, the Buddha is 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 absolutely immersed in the suffering of all sentient beings. This is the great. This is what the meaning is of the in Mahayana Buddhism. The vow not to enter Nirvana until all beings have entered Nirvana is to be completely suffering with them. This is and this is a great mistake made on the spiritual path. People think they are going to escape suffering by becoming invulnerable, emotionally invulnerable but all the great mystics have gone exactly the opposite direction. Jesus plunged into life and was willing to be crucified, and all this is is representing that that his attitude towards suffering was not to run away from it at all. They go the other extreme. It's very, very interesting. We spend our whole lives trying to run away from suffering, and it never works. So why not take the other approach? What would happen if you plunged in? Funny thing happens. Which you can find out for yourself. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> you get squished. <laughs> but then you don't mind being squished. That's the trick. <laughs> Did that help clear up a little bit of uh, your questions about gnosis? Good. I hope it helped on an intellectual level, but now I hope you don't rest on this. I'm <laughs> pointed. One of the great dangers, uh, and, and not uh, this isn't aimed at you specifically, but it is true. People, you know, go to teachings like this and they learn. They hear about these strange terms, you know, sometimes from other uh, languages. Shunyata means emptiness and all that, and they don't quite know what it means, and it all sounds very mysterious. And then they go to a lot of lectures and they read a lot of books, and then they they start learning what the terms mean. And then they can talk quite authoritatively about it, you know, and they can go to other groups and, of, uh, spiritual practitioners and they can talk and whatnot. And they can even write articles or books and so forth. And they've, they've created the same prison, only the design on the, on the bricks is instead of material possessions, it's shanyata and, you know, whatever. So you just have to be careful that the knowing, you know, it's very helpful to know the language of the mystics, but we want to know it the way we want to be able to read instructions. For instance, if you get a, um, uh, I don't know, a computer that's made in Japan and it comes with instructions that are in Japanese, you have to learn the language in order to put the computer together, to assemble it, you see what I mean? So you want to learn it just in that sense. You are learning a language of instruction, that's all you're learning. And beyond that, if you get fascinated with the sheet of instructions and you start to revere the sheet of instructions, you know, and then you start to write articles about these instructions and you start to have discussions and whole forums about these instructions, <laughs> ah, you've missed the whole point. You've forgotten. And in many traditions, not only that, it happens with people, and then it happens uh, writ large with traditions. You know, they lose track of the fact that the all the gospels are instructions. That's what Jesus said, you know, he said, look, he said, you know, keep my teachings, keep, do what I say. And, and that whole thing about uh, to know the truth and become free starts with something like those who will follow my teachings will know the truth. My, one of my favorite uh, remarks about uh, Christianity is somebody said, well, we don't really know if it's a good religion or not because nobody's ever trying to practice it. You don't know if the mystics are telling the truth or not until you try to practice it. Once you practice it, once you find out, you don't need the instructions anymore except to help other people.
0: The question about the bricks. The bricks you're pulling out and uh, the knowledge you're unlearning. So basically, you restate that again about what you're unlearning as your
1: point of reference. Okay. I'll give you just an example from my life. Um, up until I started on a spiritual path, I was absolutely convinced that the world is made up of matter, atoms, and then everything's built up of atoms, and they all exist out there, and they all follow these deterministic laws, the laws of Newtonian physics. Do you know what I mean? And that there is no point or meaning to any of this beyond that there's nothing, you know, death is just the dissolution of the brain and all that, you know what I mean and uh, that morality and, uh, you know, doing good or love and compassion that are all these things are uh, uh, you know, fictions that human beings have thought up, that they don't really mean anything, you know and that the only uh, the only possible happiness there is in any of this is really pleasure you know uh, physical pleasures, Big, you know, like good wine and pasta and all that and sex and whatnot. But then pleasures of, um, a career, you know, uh, prestige, you know, th- those sorts of things. That, that was the limit. This is what I saw of happiness being. Now, this was knowledge. I mean, I thought of it as knowledge. I thought, all this is based, this is really based on reality, the way things really are, you see. And then several things start happening. First of all, I began to, to read first. And this directed my attention to other things, like dreams. And then I had a couple of dreams which could not be explained in terms of that worldview. And, and then primarily, probably the most important thing happened was that Athena came into my life. This, this being who was not a concrete being, you know. Now, what I mean by unlearning here is, first of all, there was a great temptation, and I was aware of it, to just dismiss this sort of phenomenon, you know. It just isn't real dismiss it. And to unlearn is to say, well, wait a minute. First of all, uh, I had also read at this point Fritjof's Capra's book on uh, the Tao of physics, and I didn't really understand quantum mechanics, but what I did understand is my idea of reality was no longer the scientific idea. That whatever reality was, and and physicists didn't agree, and still to this day don't really agree, it, it is not material. One of the justifications in my mind was that I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I have a scientific view of things, you see. Oh, science supports me. And this was like really ripping the rug out from under my feet. I thought, well, gee, what then what you believe is just as much of based on faith as, you know, any Christian or these people that I used to poo-poo, you see. I mean, there's no basis for it. It just happens what you were taught, and you know, you just grew up with. That's why you believe it. There's no other reason. And then... When experience started happening like Athena, I was able to say, "Well, I don't know the nature of this, but I do know it's valuable. It's going to lead me somewhere. So instead of substituting a new worldview that deciding well, is Athena real or not and what way is she real? are there other planes with other beings on the other side, you know, some people cook up a whole new kind of worldview, a new set of distinctions that they lock onto. You see what I mean? I just started letting go and saying, well, all I know is I'm being guided, I'm being directed, I don't know where, I don't know why, you know, but I'll just go with this. I mean, I got nothing, there's no other game in town right now, you know. So this is what, this is like taking the bricks out. I followed the teachings as instructions, but didn't try to turn them into a new reality to inhabit, a new, you know, uh, constructed reality.
0: Um... Yeah. From my experience, I want to talk about it through education. Mm -hmm. I went through four years of college, and I learned all these facts and took all these tests and learned everything, you know. And I thought I had this concrete world of what the... um, I had this concrete way of looking at the world. Well, This is the way it is. Then when I went into the master's program, the first thing that um, I started to learn about were these overviews, these paradigms of reality. We fit all of our knowledge into these worldviews. Well, one of the first things I learned that these worldviews change constantly. So the point is, there isn't anything solid. That its civilization is growing, and as it grows, we see things in a broader way. And as we see them in a broader way, we throw out all the old knowledge. But as far as there being any, this is it in terms of uh, looking at it from an educational standpoint, it isn't even there, which is... What happens then is you walk around saying, well, I just don't know anything anymore for a long time. I don't know anything anymore because everything you've learned then has to be thrown out to look at things in a more broader perspective.
1: Right. That's great. And this is a whole very interesting development in modern um, all sorts of fields, people recognizing this this business of paradigms, and it creates a whole big problem because then what is truth? It depends what paradigm you have. That's, That's you right. define truth, you That's know? Right. And so... Sometimes this, um, this realization, and it is a kind of realization, hey, that all these truths that we have are just dependent on our culture's paradigm at the moment, uh, leads people to believe that everything is just sort of relative, you know, you know, and this is true in academia today. Mm-hmm. There's just this big free-floating, well, you know, we don't quite, you know, anything's true. It's just relatively true and all that. Mm-hmm. Mystics don't say that. They say that actually there is an absolute. But it cannot be got through thought, and therefore, it cannot be got through any paradigm. Now, one other thing I have to say about this, though, that what mystics do say is they will give you a paradigm in the sense of, as I said before, a set of instructions. The, and, and actually, if you think about it, all paradigms are really sets of instructions. They're instructions of how to envision a world. In fact, language is nothing but a set of instructions about how to envision a world. Think about that for a minute. When the set of instructions works for a bunch of people, and a lot of people can follow this set of instructions, they produce a socially constructed world. All languages, all knowledge is really when it boils down to a set of instructions. Now, the mystic set of instructions... Uh, we might say these are all sacred paradigms, sacred worldviews. They may be very different. The Christians quite different from the Buddhist and the Hindu, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at one level. But what they all have in common is, they're all saying, here's a set of instructions, the purpose of which is to transcend this set of instructions. The instructions take you to land's end so you can jump off, you know. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it's uncharted, and it cannot be charted. Secular worldviews are enclosed. They don't say there's any land's end where you can jump off. They just say, well, we just wander around here and wander around here. Even if they're aware that they are relative, they then say, well, we'll just have, we'll just create more, uh, you know, sets of instructions and you never get out of sets of instructions. But all sacred worldviews, there's a way to get out of these instructions, you know, to find out what these instructions are really about. So they're only directing your attention to something that's beyond. But this is very interesting about our culture. I'm glad you brought it up, uh, this whole idea of uh, it's becoming obvious as we get in contact with more and more people and become more aware of uh, the basis of ideas. There's nothing there to grasp onto. All worldviews are relative in that sense. I think it's very healthy to expose yourself to different worldviews, and often I bring in books here about other cultures or talk about other cultures because people... experience the world differently. They don't just think about it differently, they experience it. Why? Because thinking is a set of instructions.
0: Yeah. Um, I studied cross-cultural research. Um, I got my degree at the University of Hawaii. And I had a lot of uh, fellow uh, students who were Japanese. And they would tell me that when they were th- thinking in English, or thinking in Japanese, or speaking in English, or speaking in Japanese, whole sets of value systems went right along with it. It wasn't like they're like this one person that thinks one way. They actually feel and experience life differently through the language. I think
1: that's particularly true of a language probably like Japanese, which is so quite different. Yeah. I I uh, knew a, um, a Pima, was he Pima or his wife was Pima, I've forgotten that, a shaman, Indian medicine man down in uh, California, and at home, he and his wife spoke, it's not Pima, but uh many anyway, Whites, one of those southwestern tribes. And they spoke their native tongue at home, you know, with their friends and relatives and so forth, but you can't tell a dirty joke in their language. I mean, you they have words for sexual organs and so forth, but it's not funny. I mean, you know, there's nothing funny about it in their language. So they have to switch to English if they want to tell a dirty joke. So they'll be talking long, suddenly they'll switch over to English, tell the dirty joke, and then switch back to their native tongue. <laughs> all right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close on that note, <laughs> on that high spiritual note. And uh, you're welcome to stay and have tea and uh, check out the library.